Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, as the coronavirus pandemic shut down business as usual around the world, some saw a kind of silver lining in emerging images of formerly gray skies returned to blue. Skylines re-emerging from years of polluted muck. More than an ironic upside, those images were a message that situations presented as inevitable have always been choices, that it is action and inaction that have kept those skies gray. COVID-19 may be hastening things, but the oil industry was already on the ropes. And while we welcome the demise of an industry that does such harm, we have to remember that a creature can do tremendous damage in its death throes and that a better way forward isn't guaranteed unless we fight for it. We learn about the end of oil and what could come next with Antonia Juhas. She's an energy analyst, journalist, and author whose books include The Bush Agenda, Invading the World One Economy at a Time, The Tyranny of Oil, the World's Most Powerful Industry, and What We Must Do to Stop It, and most recently, Black Tide, The Devastating Impact of the Gulf Oil Spill. That's coming up, but first, a brief look back at recent press. Josh Cho lays it out plainly on FAIR.org. When the president of the country has explicitly declared his intentions to withhold federal election funding from states that are trying to make it easier to vote during a pandemic, appointed a major donor with conflicts of interest to sabotage the U.S. Postal Service, claimed that the defeat of lawsuits aimed at disenfranchising voters is the biggest risk to his reelection bid, deputized 50,000 poll watchers to intimidate people, advised his supporters to commit the felony of double voting, proposed postponing the elections, preemptively cast results in doubt by suggesting they may not be legitimate, and repeatedly refused to state whether he would concede the election in the event of a loss, well, then the evidence threshold has been satisfied for journalists to declare that he is trying to steal the election. Journalists and newsrooms have an obligation to report that the most powerful person in the country is trying to subvert the democratic process. A failure to do so is journalistic malpractice. Yet, while you can find several op-eds pointing out that Donald Trump is acting to steal the election, for serious news reporters it remains, and one suspects will continue to remain, a theoretical possibility. Cho searched articles in the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Houston Chronicle, Chicago Tribune, Minneapolis Star Tribune, L.A. Times, and USA Today from July 7th to September 7th and found various scenarios of how Trump could steal the election, columns wondering what might happen if Trump refused to concede the election, and reports on Democratic politicians asserting that Trump is trying to steal the election. But not a single news article treating it as something that is happening. 
And along with stories on Democratic Party politicians like Beto O'Rourke warning of what might happen, corporate media have made space for Trump to air his accusations that it's Democrats who are trying to commit election theft, encouraging any who would want to to see it all as a story of partisan dispute. Maybe worst, while a number of stories explore scenarios, Cho found no articles calling for action, conveying a presumption that citizens are supposed to be passive spectators and not active participants. Legal scholars note that the peaceful succession of power relies more on norms than on laws or institutions. And as we have learned, norms mean nothing to Donald Trump. And every time he runs roughshod over another of them, corporate, elite, democracy dies in darkness news media cover for it with palaver about how he's breaking with tradition. The cowardice is shocking. But get ready for the hypocrisy if Trump, as one can only wish, loses and the same corporate press corps claim they're the ones who pulled us back from the precipice. History will look unkindly also on things like the Associated Press's September 4th election season launch piece, which multiple critics noted could stand as an emblem of elite media's abdication of duty in the Trump era. Joe Biden and Donald Trump, AP told readers, offer, quote, dueling versions of reality, close quote. Yeah, AP chief political reporter Steve Peoples wrote, quote, on the campaign trail with President Donald Trump, the pandemic is largely over, the economy is roaring back, and murderous mobs are infiltrating America's suburbs. With Democrat Joe Biden, the pandemic is raging, The economy isn't lifting the working class, and systemic racism threatens black lives across America, close quote. Oh, those, quote, dizzyingly different versions of reality, close quote, laments the piece, before adding a note that should enter textbooks. Quote, all the conflicting messages carry at least a sliver of truth, some much more than others, close quote. For a reporter, to find yourself translating away from the coherent like that might be a sign you should turn to a different profession. For readers, it's a sure sign to turn the page. And finally, the both-sidism that plagues elite journalism extends beyond partisanship per se. Writer-organizer Dorothy Benz called out a Washington Post piece from late August. U.S. political divide becomes increasingly violent rattling activists and police. Her high school English teacher, Benz noted, would have taken a red pen to that title, pointing out that divides can't be violent, only people can. So people on both sides of a divide are becoming violent, is what the Post meant, and that's the real problem. The piece describes an armed right-wing attack on a voter registration rally sponsored by a Democratic congressional candidate in Tyler, Texas, Hundreds of armed people descended on the peaceful crowd, yelling obscenities and physically assaulting them. The piece describes the scene as scuffling, downplaying the level of violence and intimidation involved in the attack and suggesting that both sides contributed to it. The article refers to a spate of exchanges and a series of disturbances to describe what is a pattern of right-wing political violence directed at protests against police brutality. 
Later on, the assault in Tyler, Texas, is summed up as an incident where brawls erupted. Worst of all, Ben's notes, the Post manages to talk about various armed attacks on people protesting police violence without ever using the words racism, racist, or white supremacy. The U.S. is teetering on the brink of white supremacist-fueled authoritarianism. Instead of raising the alarm, the Washington Post all but shrugs, concluding this piece, quote, with so many people showing up armed, including growing numbers of left-wing social justice activists, police are warning people that they need to understand the risks associated with modern-day protests and political activity, close quote. Thus, democratic protest is treated like some kind of luxury extreme sport where you need to consider carefully whether or not to participate. And if you get hurt, it's your own fault. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. Dow Jones dropped ExxonMobil from its blue-chip stock market index, a spot it had occupied since 1928. Major banks are talking, anyway, about divesting from oil and gas. Hundreds of U.S. institutions, including colleges, have done so. And, of course, hundreds of millions of people globally have spoken out, marched, and agitated against a fossil fuel industry that is despoiling ecosystems, driving climate disruption, distorting international relations, and wreaking havoc on the lives and communities of mostly poor, mostly people of color around the world. A convergence of factors, plus COVID, suggest we are seeing the irreversible decline of the oil industry and its stranglehold. But how do we manage that? And what comes next? Our guest says that has a lot to do with us. Investigative journalist and author Antonia Yuhas has been writing about oil for years now. Her most recent book is Black Tide, The Devastating Impact of the Gulf Oil Spill. She joins us now by phone. Welcome back to Counterspin, Antonia Yuhas. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be back with you. I'd like to talk about these companion pieces you've just written, The End of Oil is Near and Bailout. They appeared in the magazine Sierra. Would you talk first about the convergence of factors that spelled the end of the oil industry before coronavirus, and then what's been the impact of the pandemic on that movement? Yeah, I think those problems can really be boiled down to an industry that's been producing a product that people and the world have been trying to get away from and succeeded in getting away from. And the reason why people have been trying so hard to get away from it is manifold, but it amounts to the contribution of oil and fossil fuels to the climate crisis and the experience of people who live where oil operations take place, whether that's exploration or drilling or transport or consumption or dumping, the voices of those people have been increasingly listened to and elevated and responded to because of the problems that they have faced, the host of problems they've faced from public health to the environment, to politics, to economics. And their voices are being listened to more and more, which has helped spur movements for alternatives, um, accessible and affordable alternatives, a shift demanding a politics that doesn't 
continue to subsidize the oil industry to the detriment of those alternatives and doesn't favor those companies over companies that provide alternatives to fossil fuels. So a weakening of the political power and a response to that shift, the desire to move away from oil being reflected in policy changes that are moving that needle further away. All of that has resulted in a decline in the growth of demand for oil, which really started to accelerate in 2015. So a weakening of demand, a weakening of price for oil, and then in response to that weakening demand and the weakening price that producers could get for their product to try and make the same amount of money, they kept producing more and more and more. And the U.S. was really at the forefront of this problem, just producing more and more and more, reaching record levels. So after in the Obama administration, the last year of the Obama administration, the U.S. was producing less oil than the year before. And then under the Trump administration, we just reached record highs of production. That was also happening globally. So we had, starting in 2018 in particular, just this glut of oil, way too much product, not enough demand for it, a low price in return for it, but the producers kept making more and more and more and more. So you've got too much product, not enough money to be made off of it, not enough demand for it. And that also meant that the economic returns to these companies were failing. So their profits were collapsing. Investors were starting to look elsewhere. Banks were starting to look elsewhere. And the interest in the companies was waning and the ability to make money off of them and their ability to make money was waning. And this all built up to the perfect visual encapsulation of this was before the coronavirus hit, the oil industry was, was already facing a glut. Then when the virus hit, And people started responding to stay-at-home orders, and they were staying at home, and they weren't driving, and they weren't flying, and products weren't moving as much. So trucks weren't moving as much to move products around. But the companies and the countries kept producing oil. And then we had these armadas of oil tankers floating around the ocean in harbor. So people who lived in California saw them. People who lived on coasts around the world just saw this buildup of tankers in harbors, in the ocean, and that was oil being stored at sea because there was just too much of it and nowhere to put it. And a lot of those tankers are still floating around right now on this sort of hope that the oil company has that someday its oil will be worth more tomorrow than it is today. So they're sticking it at sea to wait for that moment. But if, if I'm right, and if Moody's, for example, has predicted that 2019 was the height of oil demand ever, that we're never going to demand as much oil as we did that year. BP has also predicted the same thing. Then that oil isn't going to see a brighter tomorrow. And instead, what needs to happen is they just need to stop producing so much of a product that we really don't want. I I very much like the way you put people and protest at the center of change rather than saying... Oh, well, you know, the the profits are shrinking, you know, the market spoke, you know, or, or something like that, uh, putting that first. It, everything we understand about environmental and human health points to keep it in the ground. And yet we're forced to watch this daylight nightmare of companies pushing to drill for every last drop, you know, causing all kinds of harms. It reminds me of the expression, you know, who's going to be the last man to die for a mistake. But the industry, as you explain, is doing that and can do that 
because of government policy, including COVID policy. So folks may have suspected it was happening, but you spell out some ways that the Trump White House is propping up the oil industry right now. What should we know about that? So first of all, the activism and the market forces are intimately related. They are they are operating as a response to one another. So the activism is changing the market forces and the market forces are responding to the activism. So activists are targeting banks. They're targeting investment funds like BlackRock. And they're saying, we don't want you investing in fossil fuels anymore. And the banks and the investment funds and investors are responding. So trillions of dollars of investments have been moved out of the fossil fuel sector in a direct response to activism, pushing those changes. There's definitely still holdouts, particularly banks and investment funds. But there's a response that is happening. These these forces are working in tandem and should be understood as not independent of one another. Right, right. So we're basically very much at this moment where the actions of the public to push public policy are really the determining factor on what's going to happen with the industry. And so right now, the International Monetary Fund has estimated that the global fossil fuel industry is subsidized to the tune of some $5 trillion a year. So this is an industry that is very much propped up by government policy. And government policy right now really can be the deciding factor on if fossil fuels and oil in particular continue to be propped up. And the Trump administration has definitely come in to try to do that really with their Republican allies in in Congress, because the Democrats have definitely pushed back against these plans. But so far, they're moving forward. And the Trump administration first said, we're going to bail out the fossil fuel industry. And Democrats said, no, that's not going to happen. So what we ended up with was three somewhat stealth measures to do that. The first is that a very large number of oil companies have been supported by the CARES Act through the Paycheck Protection Program. And this research organization documented, did research for me, for my Sierra Magazine articles, and documented found that some 7,000 oil and gas companies have received as much as $7 billion in Paycheck Protection Program money. And that's gone to what I would consider rather large oil companies. And it's also contributed to the overall bias of the Paycheck Protection Program towards white male businesses that we've seen, Mm -hmm. because the oil industry is globally, by and large, run by white men. And in the United States, full-time employees of oil companies also tend to be white men. So when we looked at the, for companies that stated their ownership, the oil and gas companies were definitely disproportionately white male owned as well. So that's a lot of money. And then the Republicans really snuck in a tax loophole into the CARES Act, which the Democrats have been trying to close. Hmm. And through that tax loophole, at least 50 publicly traded oil and gas companies have taken at least $3 billion. And I'm really emphasizing the at least because no one has collected this information. What right. what the Jesse Coleman, the researcher at Documented, did was literally just look up the Securities and Exchange Commission information that is published by publicly traded companies that's required. It's basically their tax information and just looked up oil and gas companies to see which ones 
publicly stated that they took this tax loophole. But of course, that only includes the companies he was able to look up. And it doesn't include any privately held companies because they don't have to release this information, though there are a lot of privately held oil and gas companies in the United States. A lot of fracking companies are really just owned by hedge funds that are just trying to make money, you know, are, are not oil and gas companies. They're really just hedge funds. Right. And they don't have to share this information. So 50 companies made at least $3 billion that way. But the biggest pool of money is coming out of these changes that happened through the Federal Reserve under lobbying by the Trump administration. And it's unknown how many hundreds of billions of dollars this could end up being. But the Federal Reserve implemented several new programs. And I would just preface this by saying the Federal Reserve needed to take action. We need to save the economy from COVID. But these actions included new mechanisms that are overweighted in fossil fuels, so Mm -hmm. more weighted in fossil fuels than their counterparts in in the regular market. And essentially, for the first time ever, you and I, the American taxpayer, through the Federal Reserve, now own the debt of some of the largest oil and gas companies in the world, Exxon, Chevron, Energy Transfer Partners, the pipeline company behind Dakota Access Pipeline, you name it, we now own their debt. So we're backing up these companies and the Federal Reserve is essentially sending a a message to the market that the fossil fuel industry will be supported so that ExxonMobil, the day after these programs were announced by the Fed, went out and sold nearly $10 billion in the debt market, so being propped up to the tune of nearly $10 billion. So this is all just this sort of mass subsidization through the Fed that is overweighted in fossil fuels, and that's deeply problematic. So those are the mechanisms that the federal government is, is trying to put into place to prop up this industry. And to be clear, propping up or bailing out the companies has not translated to the retention necessarily of jobs in the industry? No, because we're seeing the same companies laying off thousands of workers. Estimates of oil industry job loss are reaching about 100,000 in the United States alone. So I, I do think that some workers have been furloughed, certainly by having these companies supported. But you know what a lot of people I've spoken to would rather see, for example, is you've got a lot of furloughed workers that are getting support through the Paycheck Protection Program. That's great. We want to see workers protected. Let's use this time that they're at home to provide them with training for the transition. Let's do online training for solar installation, for jobs in the green economy, and use this as a time and opportunity for just transition rather than to prop up companies that would otherwise be going away because they're producing a product that we don't want anymore. And let's shift to supporting industries for the green future and the green economy. And that's not happening. So there's sort of a massive disproportionate support in the Paycheck Protection Program for fossil fuel companies versus renewable green energy companies. Well, finally, we were talking with you in 2006 about how you weren't allowed to say the U.S. invasion and war on Iraq had anything to do with oil. That was déclassé. You know, that wasn't being a serious student of foreign policy. You said at the time that you thought the public is smart enough to understand trade policy, to understand the role of oil in war, for example. I would venture to say you think the public are smart enough to see the economic and the human value in a just transition to 
a healthier economy and to discern which policies take us closer or further from that goal and not to fall for the kind of old jobs versus environment lie. I wonder what you think reporters might be doing more or less of to help with that. I think that is a myth, but let's hope it goes away sometime really soon because there's been so many great studies, such great economic studies that have looked at basically what have been the best economic recovery programs since 2008, since the 2008 crash, and what's provided the best long-term and immediate economic support for economies trying to rebuild after this type of crisis. And green recovery programs have always done better, essentially, since 2008. And economists point to several things. One is the oil industry has been moving away from workers for years now. They've been increasingly automating their activities and trying to gain, quote-unquote, efficiencies by having less workers. Workers are expensive. They get hurt. They organize. They demand things like pay and health care. You know, so, so strange. And it's much better to work with machines. And the industry has been increasingly automating. And there have been some really great economic studies that have shown that more investment dollars into the fossil fuel industry yields less, much less returns for jobs than does investments in the green sector, where these are jobs that are being done by people in solar, insulation and wind, in efficiency for homes and buildings, new things that we need, like better pipelines to move cleaner, safer water in the United States. You know, a pipeline worker is agnostic as to what's flowing through their pipeline, so they don't need it to be oil and gas. It could very happily for them be water. And we need a lot of rebuilding for water in this country. Basically, there's a greater jobs return and a greater safety return on moving to the green economy. And so this is, it's a job winner to move to a green economy and a job loser to double down on fossil fuels. So in addition to the fact that the industry is moving away from human employment, they're also just trying to get leaner and meaner as they lose money, as they lose returns, they need to try and make more money by spending less. And so they're also just working with less, not only automating, but just trying to do everything with fewer operations. And there are companies that are just going to fall by the wayside, regardless of how much money we spend to try and prop up the executives and the owners, which is where a lot of the money is going, they're still going to go bankrupt. They're still going to go away because there just isn't enough demand for their products. So we're throwing good money after bad, essentially. We've been speaking with journalist and author Antonia Yuhas. Her most recent book is Black Tide, The Devastating Impact of the Gulf Oil Spill, out from John Wiley and Sons. You can find the articles The End of Oil is Near and Bailout on her website, AntoniaYuhas.net. Antonia Yuhas, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks so much for having me. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.